Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Wendy. I'm Trish. Let's get it started. We have a case today out of Pennsylvania, the 1960s. It's a motorcycle gang murders in August 1969, Reading, PA. But before we get into all of that, let's get an update on our favorite ongoing case from Trish. This would be, of course, Sophia Tuscan Duplantier. Not really a case update because I believe the Garda is still investigating or reinvestigating her murder, but there was a memorial concert held by the community in Skull at the Harbor Hotel. This took place September 24th, and it was an orchestra concert, some operatic music, music that Sophie loved, and intermixed with some poetry readings from her favorite poets. Uh, In attendance there was Jules Thomas, who was the former partner of the self-confessed prime suspect Ian Bailey. Mm claiming he was the prime suspect. Jim Sheridan, the uh, documentary filmmaker from Murder at a Cottage, that five-part Sky series. Her son, Pierre-Louis, did not attend that concert. It's been very difficult, the article I read for him, of course, all of this being brought up. Kind of a double-edged sword. You know, you want the attention paid. You want the reinvestigation. You want the person brought to justice and to serve time for what they did. But it also brings up a lot of feelings. He turned 39 this year, which is the same age his mother was when she was murdered. Mm, that's tough. But Yeah, it is. But her brother, Jean-Pierre Gazeau, who famous world physicist, I believe, he did attend with a message from her parents. Her parents are still alive. Her father's 96, her mother's 91. That they are thankful to this community of Skull to do this for their daughter, to keep her in their memory. And they're so thankful for their support. Wow. So, yes, that's the only update I have. Well, I hope they figure it out, if for nothing else, than the parents before they pass. 90s, the 90s are getting pretty up there. They are very up there. <laughs> We also wanted to thank a couple listeners who reached out to us since our last recording. We have Dan on Facebook. He gave us a couple case suggestions. Thank you, Dan, for that. And Linda from our website, she reached out about the Jeff McDonald case. So thank you both. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach out on the website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. So... Hit us up, lend us a review, tell us how much you love us, ask us a question, give us a case suggestions. We take all of it. Or just introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. But we love that too. I know. I like hearing from people. Get to know us. Get to know us. Get to know you. Let's get to know this case. Today's case is the Dreamland Park Murders. So when our listeners hear August 1969, which is when this case takes place, they probably think of the Manson family murders. I do. Today, we'll examine another chilling crime spree from that era on the other side of the United States, the Dreamland Park murders. In August 1969, outlaw bikers murdered a young couple at their abandoned amusement park turned clubhouse, and those same bikers may be responsible for the unsolved murders of two sisters in August 1968 as well. While two of the men involved died in prison, it's likely that two more killers were allowed to walk free. And that's just one symptom of an organized crime problem that has plagued this area for generation and lives at the heart of today's case. So it's never simply cut and dry with me. Let's get into it. (laughs) 
So the city of Reading, Pennsylvania, it's in southeastern PA, and it is central to this case. It sits just an hour or so northwest of Philadelphia, and it's the home of the Reading Railroad. Yes, the same one from Monopoly. And it's Reading, not Reading. And it's the Schuylkill River, not any other weird pronunciation that you might have. Reading is the seat of Berks County. It makes up nearly a quarter of the entire county's population. And outside of the city of Reading, Berks County is mostly rural. It's forest, farmland. It's inhabited by the descendants of the Pennsylvania Dutch. This is the land of polka music, barn hex signs. And it wasn't uncommon to hear residents speaking German around the city of Reading into the 1950s. Also kielbasa. Kielbasa. Did you forget kielbasa? <laughs> kielbasa, pierogies, halupkis. Right. Nom, 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 nom. By the 1960s and through the 1980s, Reading's population was decreasing at a rate of 10% at every census, so every 10 years. Reading has a tough reputation, and while current crime statistics do back that up, much of the city's problems lie in the political corruption that overtook the city in the mid-20th century. Racketeering, illegal gambling, was everywhere, in plain sight, and virtually every city official was involved to some degree. Illegal gambling, including the extremely lucrative numbers games that were replaced by the Pennsylvania Lottery in the early 70s, were generally condoned by residents who criticized restrictive state laws. Ralph Kreitz was a lifelong Reading resident who made his fortune on illegal gambling, starting at his own athletic club, then convincing other establishments around Berks County, such as firehouses, civic buildings, bars, hotels, gas stations, to install his gambling machines as well. He grew his enterprise by funding private improvement loans to fellow business owners at 25% interest, bringing them paper bags filled with cash if they agreed to add his gambling machines and pay him 50% of the machine's profits. Ralph paid police informants to alert business owners of raids in enough time to store his gambling machines off-site, and his establishments were rarely investigated at all. Not only did Ralph's money improve these popular establishments, but he always bought rounds for customers when he came to collect, and this aided in his popularity among Redding's working class. He earned a beloved reputation beyond his gambling patrons, taking care of his aging mother, paying neighbors hospital bills, donating to churches, buying thousands of Christmas trees for the poor, and even chartering buses to take inner-city Philadelphia kids to baseball games. In 1938, Ralph's brother, Alton Kreitz, purchased a 17-acre property off Pricetown Road in Ruscombe Manor Township, about a half-hour's drive northwest of Reading. Ralph converted the farmland into an amusement area he called Dreamland Park and he opened it to the public in 1939. It was an older-style family picnic and entertainment area tucked into the woods, featuring a merry-go-round, miniature racetrack, roller rink, indoor theater for live shows, picnic groves, and of course, illegal gambling. It sounds like Williams Grove, if you've ever been there, except yes. they didn't have illegal gambling. <laughs> I don't think they had illegal gambling, but those, I guess today in Pennsylvania, what would that be? Like Knobles? And Knobles, Del Grosso's, those kind of places mm -hmm. now. So despite Ralph's charity and his connections, his crimes did start catching up to him when he was convicted of tax evasion in 1948. Before issuing a 60-day sentence, the presiding judge remarked, I feel like I'm putting Santa Claus in jail. <laughs> he had a really great reputation, and it, what he was doing was not uncommon. Ralph's mother, who he had been housing and caring for, passed away the following year in 1949. Then in 1950, the IRS seized Ralph's athletic club. 
He openly revealed the details of his racketeering activities during a 1951 trial, and that resulted in just a four-month prison sentence for Ralph, but also the conviction of several others. At the time, Ralph's machines netted approximately $4,000 each month, or roughly $1,800 after business expenses. So take home for Ralph $1,800 after he paid police informants, paid the people working for him, all of these expenses. In $2,002, that means Ralph was pocketing about $21,000 himself each month from the machines alone, tax-free. And that's why he could be Santa. That's why. (laughs) Dreamland Park, it closed to the public for good in 1956 when the IRS seized it as well for Ralph's unpaid back taxes. Ralph's legal troubles, they were part of a greater effort to crack down on Redding's organized crime and the related political corruption. But instead of controlling the problem, it actually created a vacuum of power that allowed other criminal elements to move in. And that included the Pagan Motorcycle Club. So I wanted to do just a tad bit of research. If you're interested in this topic, as always, there's tons of links in the show notes. But one of our previous cases, Robert Freeman, he was in the Golden Arrows Motorcycle Club. They're not all bad dudes. And actually, motorcycle clubs began in the 1940s with returning World War II veterans who missed the camaraderie and excitement they enjoyed while they were serving. But... While most of these clubs were harmless social groups, there was an emerging outlaw element, and that started making national news in 1947. Those are the type of bikers we're talking about today. They're considered the one percenters. These are those who engage in criminal acts that escalated from originally kind of drunk and disorderly conduct to murder, and everything in between, occasionally operating right alongside the American mafia in their drugs, weapons, and sex trafficking activities. The Pagans, an early one-percenter gang, they maintained clubhouses throughout their East Coast territory for living, socializing, and carrying out their illegal activities. The clubhouses were also hangouts for drug users, hippies, and runaways. In the late 1960s, Redding was home to at least two Pagan clubhouses, an abandoned airport hangar, and Dreamland Park. Both properties were owned by the same person, Musa Eways, the father of Pagan's member, James Eways. So after Ralph Kreitz lost the Dreamland Park property over back taxes, a man named Paul Zip bought it at a sheriff's sale in 1958. This is what I found in the property records. Paul sold it to Diversified Management Corporation in 1963. And Trish, you taught us all about money laundering. Diversified Management Corporation (laughs) sounds a little fakish to me. (laughs) Diversified Management then sold it to one of its members, David Garrett, in 1966. That's a little strange. And he purchased it with a loan from Diversified Management, which was his business. Locals, police, and reporters, however, say that the owner was really Musa Eways. And Musa was David Garrett's business partner and another one of Diversified Management's members. Musa Eways, he's originally from Palestine. He was a wealthy engineer. He owned several businesses and properties in Berks County. Fun fact, if you didn't know, Taylor Swift is from the Reading area, specifically why I'm missing. And Musa Eways even at one time owned the property next door to her childhood home. According to police, Musa also owned an abandoned airport hangar that the Pagans were using as their clubhouse before Dreamland Park. And that hangar was integral to the investigation of an unsolved double homicide in August 1968. And that might be the reason why the Pagans moved their clubhouse to Dreamland Park, another one of Musa's properties, soon after. And it's Musa's son who's a Pagan. Yes. On August 22nd, 1968... 
14-year-old Michael Moore was walking to work at a horse farm about a half hour south of Reading when he noticed a strong odor. He located its source at the base of a tree where he saw a pair of legs in the underbrush. Michael had found a murdered woman who the medical examiner estimated to be 15 to 20 years old. She died about a week prior from multiple 22 caliber gunshot wounds, five in her torso and one to her left temple. She was still wearing her bra, a black blouse, nylon stockings, white girdle, white sandals, and a bronze crucifix on a chain. A mushroom hunter in French Creek State Park found more remains eight months later on April 18, 1969, just three and a half miles away from the first body, Jane Doe number one. Her skeleton was in the fetal position on top of a flat rock. And while her cause of death could not be determined, her date of death was also believed to be August 14, 1968, same as Jane Doe number one. She was approximately 21 years old and only a pair of panties and a single white sandal, an identical match to the pair found with the other victim, were found nearby. So police quickly connected the two Jane Doe's together and then also to the Pagan Motorcycle Club and their increasingly violent and troubling activities in the area. They searched the Pagan's clubhouse, that abandoned airport hangar that Musa Iwes owned in August 1969. They found photographs of two young women they believed could be the victims or other women who might be able to help identify them. But another 45 years would pass before that could happen. I promise we'll pick up that thread soon. But now we're in August 1969, and just as the Berks County Jane Doe's case seemed to be heating up, we found those photographs at the airport hangar. We have some clues. News of the Tate-LaBianca murders are breaking. Berks County residents are also kicking off their annual Kutztown Fair. Guys, you just have to be from the area to know this is a big deal. (laughs) Bikers from New York and Florida traveled to the Pagan's Dreamland Park hideout to attend the fair and pick up women. This is kind of an annual tradition for them, too. Among the Pagans welcoming visitors that week were James the Arab Eways. That was his nickname. He was age 19 at this point. And he was the son, of course, of Dreamland Park Properties owner, Musa. And Leroy Righteous Elroy Stoltzfus, a 24-year-old from Leola, Lancaster County. Leroy's father was a Mennonite bishop, but Leroy loved riding motorcycles. And he left the church to join the United States Air Force. And he eventually fell in with the Pagans. Out-of-towners Robert Bobby the Juice Martinelich, a Thunderbolts Motorcycle Club member from Selden, New York, and Harlan the Wolfman Bailey, another Thunderbolt up from Florida, hung out with James and Leroy on Tuesday, August 12th. After an unsuccessful day at the fair, the four bikers piled in their Ford Econoline van to look for women elsewhere. They would eventually encounter 18-year-old Marilyn Sheckler from Murraysville, Westmoreland County, and that's near Pittsburgh. She graduated from Franklin Regional High School that spring, where she was a mascot and a swimmer. That summer, Marilyn had moved in with her brother, Grant Jr., goes by Ted, in Exeter Township, just east of Reading City proper. She took a job working the cash register at a Boscov's department store restaurant, and that's where she met Glenn Eckert. This is one of the most Pennsylvania episodes ever. (laughs) Yes. If you're from Pennsylvania, you're like, oh, yeah, I know that. If you're not, bear with us. Mm -hmm. Glenn was 20, a 1967 graduate of Conrad Weiser High School. He was from Robizonia, about a half hour west of Reading. His father ran several country kitchen restaurants at local Boscov's department stores, and Glenn was working for his father that summer of 1969. So one of his responsibilities was collecting cash for bank deposit, and that's how him and Marilyn became acquainted. She was working the cash registers when he came to collect. So on Tuesday, August 12th, 
Glenn stopped by Marilyn and her brother's place at 9 p.m. to pick Marilyn up for a date. They left the house at 9.30 p.m. On that same night, 20-year-old James Buchter and two of his friends became lost when they were trying to visit a friend on Pricetown Road, which is near the Dreamland Park property. They turned down the wrong road and ended up at a locked gate. So remember, we have Glenn and Marilyn. They're taking a ride. They're on a date. We have our four James, Leroy, Harlan, and Robert, our four gang members driving around. And now we have James and his two friends. They end up at the Dreamland Park property. So they end up at this locked gate. When they attempted to reverse their vehicle and exit the way that they came, they saw a van occupied by several men blocking the road. James described the men as bikers and says they pulled him and his two friends from their car. They beat all three of them with clubs and chains, stabbed James, and threatened to harm their families if they snitched about it. James returned home with very serious injuries. We're talking like a hole in his shoulder. And his brother-in-law convinced him to go to the hospital. And he helped him to come up with this cover story about falling on broken glass. But after doctors examined James's wounds, they called the police. And with further questioning, James reluctantly revealed what happened. And police headed to the Dreamland Park property to investigate. So now it's midnight or shortly after. And Glenn and Marilyn had parked their light blue car at a spot along Skyline Drive, which is a well-known part of the Reading Park system. And it overlooks the city. James, Leroy, Robert, and Harlan were riding around the area at the same time and pulled their van in beside the couple upon spotting them. James stayed in the van while the other three bikers forced their way into Glenn and Marilyn's vehicle. Harlan took the driver's seat of the car, following James and the van to a Leesport train station about 20 minutes north. There, they abandoned the couple's vehicle, Harlan pocketed the car keys, and Robert used a gun to force Glenn and Marilyn into the van with the rest of them. We'll return to this case in just a moment after this listener-only offer from our sponsor. My husband is stubborn and doesn't like to spend much time or money on grooming, so I was skeptical if Manscaped products would make any difference. Since his pumpkin patch was getting overgrown, I got him some Manscaped tools to turn it into pumpkin spice and everything nice. Their lawnmower 4.0 trimmer not only got the job done fast and well, but the built-in LED light made it easier to navigate around his gourds. To be honest, it was even fun for him to play around with. I think he finally understood what I mean by treat yourself. So this fall, treat yourself or that special guy in your life with the last male grooming products you or he will probably ever need. Our loyal Criminal Discourse podcast listeners can enjoy a 20% discount plus free shipping when they use the code CDP20 at manscaped.com. That's CDP20 for 20% off your order plus free shipping at manscaped.com. And now let's get back to the case. As the group slowly made their way to the Dreamland Park Clubhouse, the four bikers took turns raping Marilyn in pairs. They arrived sometime between 2 and 4 a.m. with plans to continue, quote, training Marilyn and scaring both her and Glenn into silence. Train was the word that James Eways used in his trial testimony, and he defined it as, quote, all of us having sexual relations with the girl. But when they arrived at Dreamland, police were already there responding to James Buchter's stabbing and assault earlier that night. So the Pagans decided to drive around a bit more. And when they returned, the police were still there. So they ditched the van and forced Glenn and Marilyn into the dense woods surrounding the park. There are four different versions of what happened next, but autopsy results show that Glenn was beaten and shot multiple times. Marilyn suffered severe blunt force trauma, 
especially to the back and left-hand side of her skull. By the time they were discovered, it would be impossible to determine the specific weapons used. So Glenn's father, Charles, he was the first to report Glenn and Marilyn missing when he realized the next morning that his son hadn't arrived back home. Police believe the couple had run away to attend the music festival in Woodstock (laughs) happening that upcoming weekend. And they even called police in New York for help. And they were laughed at. (laughs) But Charles instinctively knew that the couple had been victims of foul play. So the next day, 10 people were arrested around Reading actually in connection with James Buchter's stabbing, not with Glenn and Marilyn's disappearance. And that included two underage girls and four bikers who weren't even at Dreamland Park the night of the incident. So police were rounding up just local bikers or young people who looked that way based on James's description. All four gang members involved in Glenn and Marilyn's murders just the night before, James, Leroy, Robert, and Harlan, they were arrested too, right away. But again, they're looking into James Buchter's stabbing. Police confiscated the car keys that Harlan had on him, but they didn't realize the significance yet. Musa Eways bailed his son out early. James fled to Texas to hide out, and the remaining bikers were released after extensive questioning. So while Woodstock was gearing up in the wake of this Dreamland Park stabbing, Rusco Manor Township residents met with officials to discuss their safety concerns. They didn't realize that these additional murders had even happened. They were concerned about this pagan motorcycle club this clubhouse, and they claim that the bikers had renovated the properties, the Dreamland Park properties, abandoned theater building, and they had done it without proper permitting. So this was kind of the legal way they were going to try to go about it. But the township building inspector assured them that he had spoken with the property owner, Musa Eways, and was satisfied that the repairs were not the type that required permitting, things like fixing broken windows, painting, and mowing grass. So nothing came of the meeting. But police did locate Glenn's car the following week in Leesport, where it had been abandoned. The car contained a bag with $489.23, which was the exact amount Glenn had collected from his father's restaurants on the 12th and never made it to the bank to deposit. Their shoes and a t-shirt were also located inside the car. Police found Glenn's body a few months later on October 23rd between Pricetown and Olay Furnace Roads on the outskirts of Dreamland Park. Court documents reveal that Harlan and James provided details to police about the couple's disappearance that led police to the burial site. Other sources say they just were searching around there because they assumed the pagans had something to do with it. It's not really clear why they decided to search on that day at that park. Glenn's dark, thick-framed eyeglasses were still resting on his skull, and sunlight reflecting off of them is what drew police to his remains. Marilyn's body was located a day later, October 24, 1969, 200 yards northeast of Glens. She was still wearing her girdle and yellow mini dress, and she laid in a shallow grave covered over with boulders off of Olay Furnace Road at the edge of a field beneath an apple tree. After these discoveries, Musa Eways flew to Texas, and he encouraged his son to surrender to police. James was the first to implicate Robert Martinelich, saying that Robert confessed to him about shooting Glenn. So he did surrender to police, but he said, I didn't do it. I know who did. And in exchange for this information, Pennsylvania agreed not to charge James in connection with the kidnapping, rape, murders, or conspiracy to cover up the crimes. But since they still needed someone to charge with Marilyn's murder, they turned the pressure up on James's three accomplices. After learning that James was talking, Harlan Bailey decided to also make a deal with the state. 
He pinned Marilyn's murder on Leroy Stoltzfus, and like James, he agreed to testify against both Leroy and Robert at their murder trials. In exchange, Pennsylvania wouldn't charge Harlan with kidnapping, rape, murder, or conspiracy either. So two of the four people that did this get immunity. Correct. Do you need both of them? I would think one of them. I don't. I don't know what they needed. I know it sounds like they were under incredibly intense pressure to put some pagans in jail. And I also recall uh, our Kimberly Dots case, where we were very quick to make some deals to put somebody in jail over a murder. (laughs) I'm a little disappointed, I won't lie. So Robert Martinelich, he went to trial first in the spring of 1970. He insisted, now this doesn't sound legit. He insisted that he never met Glenn or Marilyn. And he claimed that after attending the Kutztown Fair, the four guys just went and bought sodas at a convenience store. And then they returned to Dreamland Park. That's when they spotted police, they ditched the van. And then he and Leroy walked further into the woods together trying to conceal themselves and listen to what was going on. He heard police hitting other gang members asking about him and Leroy. So the two of them hid in the crawl space of a nearby building for seven hours before escaping through the woods to a nearby hotel. James Eway testified that it was his idea to pick up girls after the fair that night, but he had suggested just looking for single girls at a bar. Now, remember, he's the one who talked about what training the women is. It was Robert who suggested abducting someone instead, according to James. And the plan was to bring women back to Dreamland Park for other gang members to rape. He claims to have just left the scene with Harlan before Glenn and Marilyn were murdered. How convenient. How convenient. Harlan Bailey also testified that he left with James before Leroy and Robert murdered the young couple, elaborating on how Robert and Leroy bragged about the murders afterward and threatened him about reporting it. He claimed that Robert told him how Leroy attempted to strangle Marilyn, but hit her in the head with a rock when that didn't work. Significant portions of Harlan's testimony depended on confessions Robert and Leroy made to him in prison after they were arrested. However, The prison warden testified that the men were held separately and unable to mingle, making that confession impossible. Didn't matter. Robert Martinelich was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Leroy Stoltzfus's trial followed in the fall of 1970. And while he admitted to being forced to participate in Marilyn's rape, he insisted that he too was innocent of murder. So Leroy claims that everyone scattered into the woods when they spotted the police at Dreamland and ditched the van. Robert observed the police activity while James and Harlan went to find a different escape vehicle. They thought that the cops had spotted them in the van. Eventually, James and Harlan returned with Glenn and Marilyn at gunpoint. When Glenn tried to take the gun from James, the struggle caused the gun to discharge, killing Glenn. James held Leroy with a knife to his throat while Harlan killed Marilyn, beating her in the side of the head with the butt of his gun and then a rock. Leroy says Robert, James, and Harlan forced him to help bury the bodies at gunpoint. Leroy Stoltzfus received the same sentence as Robert, life in prison without the possibility of parole, while James and Harlan went free. Their appeals between 1973 and 1975 were dismissed. It's unclear when the Pagans abandoned their Dreamland Park clubhouse, but in 1973, as lawyers started arguing Robert's and Leroy's appeals, Musa Eways's business partner, David Garrett, once again purchased the Dreamland Park property. With a loan from Dreamland Park property? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) This time, he was purchasing it from himself with a new partner, Anthony Fischetti, under a new joint venture called Dreamland Recreation. 
And once again, David borrowed from his and Moose's business, Diversified Management, to fund the purchase. Perhaps, and this is my thinking, it was wiser for the father of the state's witness, whose testimony put Robert and Leroy in prison in the first place, to own the crime scene a little more indirectly. Then in 1974, around the same time Robert and Leroy were making headlines with their appeals and accusations that James got away with murder, Musa and his wife, Jeanette, generated their own press by donating a building they owned to keep a local theater house in operation. I'm laughing at Trisha's responses here, guys. The company even performed a long-running musical about the Eways saving the theater. Unbelievable. <laughs> James Eways is still living in Pennsylvania. It's going to get more unbelievable, Trish. He stayed in the Reading area, and he followed in his father's footsteps, inheriting at least one of Moose's businesses after his death in 1984. Despite their connection to the Dreamland Park murders, the Eways maintained a positive reputation and influence in the Reading area. But James didn't stay out of trouble forever, even with all that financial protection. In 1995, he was living in the converted Grandview Chapel, which is part of the old Grandview Sanitarium property his parents owned that was not only unique, but the source of local lore and urban legends. In the 1960s, rumors of hauntings at the abandoned property began luring area teens like James into trespassing. In the wee hours of June 15, 1995, after drinking alcohol and smoking pot, 17-year-old Michael Abate, along with three friends, carried on this tradition by driving slowly past the chapel, shining flashlights at the windows, and shouting obscenities. James claimed he only intended to threaten the boys when he aimed his pistol just a few feet away from their vehicle, and that the gun fired accidentally, twice, hitting Michael both times, point blank, killing him. James was convicted, finally, of involuntary manslaughter and served just five years in prison. His mother, Jeanette, died in 1999 while he was still incarcerated. James inherited the home where he committed murder from his mother's estate upon his release from prison in 2003. I just wanted to clear that up. There's a lot of sources that say he owned the house, he purchased it, he owned this and that and the other thing. He really didn't, not until his parents died and he inherited things. Did he actually start owning stuff? I just want to take him down a peg. <laughs> In 2005, a book was published about the Dreamland Park murders, inferring Leroy Stoltzfus's innocence and casting suspicion on James and Musa Eways' business dealings. I have not read the book. It is of local interest and currently out of print, so copies are expensive and hard to find. But I did find, if you're interested, links in the show notes. The Ole Valley Community Library has a copy, and you can call them to put your name on the wait list to read it. In 2007, Robert Martinelich requested a new trial on the basis that his original trial lawyers struck plea deals with co-defendants who testified against him and therefore did not properly investigate or defend his case. His motion was denied and Robert died in 2018 while still incarcerated. Leroy Stoltzfus, he died in 2010 of his numerous health issues while still in prison. His family maintains his innocence and regrets that they were unsuccessful in their attempts to protect him from the lifestyle he chose. Harlan Bailey appears to still be alive and residing in Kansas. And the last activity I could find for Dreamland Park in property searches was in May 2021, when Dreamland Recreation sold the property to Rich Bliss LLC for $800,000. So what about those two Jane Doe's who were killed the year before, about them. <laughs> before Glenn Eckerd and Marilyn Sheckler, our August 1968 murders? 
So in 2013, Hazel DeMoss found promising information on the Doe Network website she was using to search for her older sister, Sandra Stiver, and sister-in-law, Martha Stiver. The pair went missing in August 1968 after leaving their home in Philadelphia. Sandra was just 14, and Martha, age 17, had recently married Sandra's older brother, Tom Stiver. So the Stiver family moved frequently for work. When they left Kansas City, Missouri for Philadelphia, Martha joined them. She and Tom had just got married. They had an infant daughter, Samantha Terry, who they left back in Kansas City. And the Stivers believe Sandra and Martha left to reunite with that infant daughter. So like Hazel, Samantha was working hard to locate her long-lost mother. After more than 40 years without progress, Reading Police finally had enough information to mobilize, and they exhumed two Jane Doe's bodies from a Berks County potter's field and matched their DNA to the Stiver family. The remains found in August 1968 were that of Sandra Stiver, and Martha Stiver's skeletal remains were those discovered in April 1969. Sandra's mother, Elizabeth, who was then 87 years old, finally received her daughter's ashes. Sandra's father had died in 1974 without knowing what happened to her. He shared his birthday with Sandra, his firstborn daughter, and he spent the years after her disappearance driving his Ford station wagon back and forth between Ohio, where the Stivers relocated, and Philadelphia searching fruitlessly for her. Martha's cremated remains rest in an urn on her daughter's nightstand. Samantha Terry is estranged from the Stivers, and she lives now not only with the loss of a mother she never knew— but believing that her mother died trying to be with her. So we know who they are, but the story is not exactly a happy ending. (laughs) No one knows for certain why Sandra and Martha Stiver left. They don't know if it's for certain that they were going back to find Samantha, where they were going, when they were killed, how or by whom, what happened to them along the way. Investigators believe that the sisters worked at the 1968 Reading Fair, and their estimated date of death, that August 14, 1968, That's almost exactly one year before Glenn Eckert and Marilyn Sheckler were murdered, and it coincides with the annual Kutztown Fair. That's where the pagans were known to prowl for women. So there's another connection. And although police thought that the photographs they found at the abandoned airport hangar turned pagan clubhouse were related to the Stiver sisters and their murder, they've never officially confirmed the identity of the girls in those photos. The Stiver family firmly believes that Sandra and Martha were victims of the pagans and that their murders are connected to Dreamland Park. In fact, Leroy Stoltzfus once claimed that James Eways, quote, bragged about killing some girls before the Dreamland Park thing. Eways confirmed for a local newspaper that investigators had questioned him about Sandra and Martha Stiver. Quote, I made certain mistakes in my life, but that wasn't one of them, he said. So when the Stiver sisters were identified with DNA in 2014, it made international news because it was the oldest Doe case to be solved that way. It was remarkable considering how much time had passed, and it provided hope that even the coldest cases could be cracked. At a press conference, after handing Sandra Stiver's cremated remains to her family, Berks County Coroner Dennis Hess made a plea to the public. Quote, if there's anyone out there with any kind of information from 1968 when these murders took place, please... It's time to have a conscience, and it's time to fess up. So if you can help, you can submit a tip online to crimealertberkscounty.org or by calling 1-877-373-9913, or you can even text 847-411. No one will ask for your name, and information that leads to an arrest will be rewarded with cash. 
And if you want to research the Stiver case or the Sheckler and Eckert case or even organized crime in Reading, there's lots of links in the show notes to take a deeper dive. But now you have something to remember August 1969 for other than the Manson murders. Okay, so we book in the country <laughs> with go. murders. Good case. Yeah, I had not heard of this case. I, it's new to me. And I used to go to Reading every year, those Vanity Fair outlets. That's where we oh, would that's go school right. shopping. I told, yes, that was the yearly preschool trip. Okay, so listen to this, though. The Vanity Fair outlets were the first ever outlet stores in America. Vanity Fair, it was like a converted clothing manufacturing warehouse yeah. that became mm-hmm. Vanity Fair manufacturers, which became the outlets. And now they just closed in 2020 for good. They're gonna they're turning it into like businesses and apartment buildings. It's a neat building. It really is. Massive. All right. Well, thank you very much. Everybody, if you've liked that episode, make sure you check out our website and check out the show notes. Wendy has put it all together for you if you'd like to do a deeper dive in this case. And all we would ask is if you have enjoyed this episode, whatever platform you're listening to us on, if you could subscribe, that'd be great. If you could leave us a review, that would be even better. And we'd like to take a moment to thank our paid sponsor with Manscaped. As Wendy said in the commercial, if you're looking for male grooming products, please check out Manscaped at manscaped.com and use our code CDP20, CDP20, plus free shipping. You can't beat it. So as we always end our episode here, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Like Wendy said at the end of the episode, if you have any information on this case, go ahead and reach out to Berks County Crime Stoppers, Crime Alert Berks County, any of those numbers she gave you or text numbers to give what you know. As the coroner said, it's time to have a conscience and it's time to fess up. I hope they figure it out. Yes. So until next time, guys, so we want you to be safe out there, but it's also remember we need to be kind to one another. Bye. Bye.